conversation about legal issues that matter to you. Understanding the culture tells you something about how the society develops its understanding of law. It seems like they're protecting our right to privacy with cell phones. This is Stanford Legal with Pam Carlin and Joe Bankman. Welcome to Stanford Legal, where we look at the cases, questions, conflicts, and legal stories that affect us all every day. I'm Pam Carlin, along with Joe Bankman. Hi, Pam. Pam, we've been talking about COVID during these last few weeks. That's what's on everyone's mind. And we're full of thoughts about social distancing amongst ourselves. We're used to seeing the little six feet marks in places. Uh, How does this work in our prisons? How does San Quentin deal with the problem of social distancing? Well, one of the things to keep in mind is that even before COVID, there were public health crises in the California prison systems. Um, I actually worked on a case in our clinic several years ago, uh, the Brown against Plata case, that involved uh, conditions that were so uh, horrific, uh, public health conditions, that the prison uh, corrections officers actually came into the case on the same side as the inmates, challenging uh, the public health crisis uh, in the California prisons that was due to tremendous overcrowding and a completely unworkable medical system. So even before the strains of COVID, uh, prisons were notorious for uh, health problems. uh, That's right. And and I note that you won that case. And one of the parts of the victory uh, was to depopulate the prisons a little bit on the thought it was really just kind of cruel and inhuman punishment having uh, uh, prisoners with such overcrowding and such health conditions. And now COVID hits. And we've asked back uh, our old friend, uh, meaning- Our youthful friend. A friend of many years, uh, 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 Bob Weisberg, to talk to us about COVID and prisons. Welcome, Bob. Thanks. As Pam mentioned, there's a certain irony here, a kind of odd prescience. Uh, What prompted the great uh, lawsuit uh, that was ultimately called Brown versus Plata was actually a pair of underlying suits, one that happened to be originally called Plata, which was about deficiencies in physical medical care in the prisons, focusing on things like people dying of uh, emphysema, uh, and the other on mental health care. so the focus was on the deficiencies in health care, but what led to the case that ultimately came to the U.S. Supreme Court was the consolidation of those two in order to uh, uh, meet the criteria of this federal statute called the Prison, uh, the Prison Litigation Reform Act, where the premise of the combined law was that it was the overcrowding that was the cause of the medical care uh, deficiencies. Therefore, there's a certain irony that spacing or crowding is an issue now. Now, as a result of the lawsuit, and in particular, the main state response to the lawsuit, which was the so-called realignment law, which was designed uh, to get large numbers of people out of the state prisons, not necessarily out of incarceration, because 
many of them were simply shifted to the county jails, but this case was, this particular case was just about the prisons. There was unquestionably a humongous drop in the prison population. And of course, it's not just the population per se, it's the ratio of population to real estate. But believe me, the real estate hasn't changed very much because the days of building new prisons are over. So uh, they use this very artificial uh, term called rated capacity, you know, which is something of an accounting and logistical uh, term. But uh, the, the state eventually got the prison population down to something closer to its rated capacity. And it's now about 110,000 people. That's, that's like 50 or 60,000 people lower. But it still wasn't where the federal court wanted it to go. And of course, that was before the new spacing requirements. And that's where we are now. So, you know, one of the things that across the country, when you look at hotspots for COVID, they tend to be um, institutions of various kinds. So nursing homes, I mean, there are a number of states where a majority of the cases can be traced to a couple of nursing homes and, um, you know, meatpacking plants with huge numbers of workers crammed in very close together. And then the third big hotspot are detention facilities, right. both prisons and jails, and obviously immigration detention facilities as well. Um, how effective is the government at trying to keep the numbers down? Uh, well, it's way behind, uh, no question about it. And it could just be a kind of not very benign neglect of, uh, of this particular population. But in, uh, so of course, it's tough to maintain spacing in a place where uh, you've got uh, multiple prisoners in rooms, either double or triple celled or people living in dormitory uh, type settings. That problem has been alleviated somewhat under the lawsuit, but not enough. Second, uh, you know, cleanliness uh, uh, and, you know, just all the institutional requirements in any building or setting right now of sanitation or sanitization, if that's the term, are much harder to pull off in prisons. Uh, and there's a lot of random movement of prisoners, uh, a lot of mobility and too much proximity. Add to the, that that a fair number of prisoners are of compromised health status in the first place. Some of them elderly, some of them just, well, not in very good shape. But the pivotal tragic thing that happened in California recently was just a terrible mistake. I don't think anybody denies it was a terrible mistake. Trying to solve uh, a medium-sized problem in one particular prison, the California men's colony at Chino, by transferring a large number of infected prisoners to San Quentin, where it was thought that there was more space. But all it did was really create a new and exacerbated hotspot in, in San Quentin. As a result of that, and a huge amount of bad publicity, political pressure, and so on, the state is now committed to uh, the next of several rounds, and probably the, the most dramatic new round of plain old decarceration, plain old prisoner releases. So as of last week, they spoke about eight to 10,000 people being released from the prison over the next few weeks. And are the people they're releasing people who've been tested and have tested negative for COVID? Are they people who've been tested and have, been, have tested positive? What's, what sort of people are being released? All of the above. Uh, the, well, how does that, how does that, I, I, if you're releasing people who are, who are infected with COVID, doesn't that just move the problem from inside the prison to wherever those people then go well, to that's live. a relatively small number but it could be cases where they are not it's not so much that they're infected but they're very very sick and they simply need to be treated in a facility which has better medical 
in care than the prison itself, but that's a very small number. It's mainly people who are, uh, if, if, even if they haven't tested positive, are thought to be uh, particularly vulnerable, or simply people who we know have no reason to think are sick uh, or infected, but who are considered extremely low risk. So in other words, you know, as always, we don't know who's sick. Maybe not that many people in a particular place are sick, but the less crowding, the better. This is Stanford Legal, and today we're talking with our colleague, Bob Weisberg, about COVID and the criminal justice system. Joe? Bob, I'm thinking of 8,000 prisoners being released. I guess there's two ways to look at it, like everything else. On the one end, that's a big number. And I know with realignment, a lot of people worried about what happens to the crime rates when people that you've thought deserved incarceration are now released for reasons unrelated to, to desert. Uh, so that's one angle of it. And the other angle of it is it's not a very big number if there's 100,000 people still in the prisons. It seems like that wouldn't be enough to, enough social distancing. It's probably not enough. It's a kind of iterative concession by the state and uh, the, the legal forces here, mostly represented by the famous and legendary uh, prison law office run by Don Spector, which has you know, been the plaintiff's lawyer for uh, all these lawsuits, have said, you're not even close yet. Uh, but of course, uh, Newsom and the CDCR are having to navigate some political shoals, of course, and therefore they say they're being very careful. Uh, in terms of the criteria for release. And we hear terms that we've always heard in decarceration effort, uh, efforts, you know, these distinctions between so-called violent and nonviolent prisoners uh, and the special category of sex offenders. Uh, one of the ironies here is that, as with a lot of decarceration efforts, the, the most logical people to release are the elderly, of course, uh, because they're vulnerable. Uh, they, their chance of serious crime when they get out is close to zero, and they're very expensive to maintain. But it gets to your point about dessert, because this whole issue of release is a really interesting jurisprudential question. Where did these sentences come from such that we hear complaints that they're getting out early? Early as compared to what? If they're legislated sentences, those are not platonic essences. Those were just legislative contrivances. And if you're letting somebody out next month uh, when he, uh, he was on a four-year sentence and he's getting out, let's say, in three and a half years, what is the theory, uh, the utilitarian theory, about what the effect of that extra six months is? Would it have been just enough incarceration to cause him to, uh, to be rehabilitated? Uh, what's the calculation? These are very arbitrary matters. So this notion of releasing people early, everybody is released early, or almost everybody is, because there's good behavior and stuff like that. If we so heavily incarcerate people in this country and for very severe sentences, we know that you can cut off a large fraction of a sentence without any predictable effect on public safety. So the question here, though, is also one of public health. And I guess you know, COVID is coming into the prisons by prisoners being transferred from one prison to another. Uh, COVID is coming into the prisons through uh, asymptomatic but infected guards. 
Um, one of the things that you kind of see in in the media right now are complaints that, for example, attorneys can't meet with their clients who are detained in person because of COVID rules. Uh, Visitation has been cut off because of COVID. Um, Does that change dramatically how people who are incarcerated or or who are detained pre-trial experience that detention? Most people in prison uh, don't have any kind of right of counsel anymore. Their cases are over. Put aside death row inmates. Uh, obviously, they want prison visits, uh, legal well, Aren't a lot of them still appealing, though? They can, they can appeal, but uh, no, most of them actually are not appealing. No, I know most of them, but... Most of them aren't. But those who are appealing, of course, there's a loss of attorney contact. But let's put it not only in the pretrial detention stage in, in jail, but in terms of criminal defense generally. Lawyers are not able to meet their clients and vice versa. Uh, there's this concern, of course, that there are no trials or pretrial events that are held live anymore. There are very few of them. There are hearings going on, but almost never trials. And jury trials are, you know, just aren't happening anywhere because you can't put a jury together. Uh, but uh, the most immediate effect is the absence of lawyer-client direct contact, even putting aside the whole question of legal procedure. This is Stanford Legal. And today we're talking with our colleague, Bob Weisberg, about criminal justice in the COVID era. Joe? Bob, what happens without the trials? I mean, I imagine you've got a backup uh, uh, through the system of all sorts of people that are waiting to be tried. Some of them are uh, in jail without bail. Most of them probably aren't, I'm guessing. How is that going to resolve itself, and, and what are the consequences of that? Well, one vector where the state or the, the DA want to play tough is suspension of speedy trial rights, which means somebody especially, and it's of a special concern if you're in jail, may have to wait a lot longer for a trial for a long, long time because, you know, there are these emergency exemptions to the speedy trial action, a speedy trial right. But let me say something about the other end of it. There is a huge amount of decarceration going on now at the county level, a huge amount. First of all, uh, the state somewhat uh, erratically, but on the whole, has instituted a so-called zero bail policy uh, for at least misdemeanors for sure, and even low-level felons, uh, which means people are not being put in pretrial detention who would otherwise have been. Uh, Sheriffs have a fair amount of power to kind of open and close, largely open the spigot on the county jails. DAs, the most thoughtful ones, are actually ditching a lot of cases, dismissing charges, doing all kinds of things. This keeps people out of jail, takes the pressure off the legal system at a time when trials aren't possible. And if you look down the road a little, it's also relieving pressure on the state prisons. The state prisons don't want any, they're having enough trouble with the prisoners who are there. So they really, you know, when you talk about big thematic decarcerative efforts like the Plata case of realignment, there's a lot of low level but high volume decarceration going on right now. Is, is that true across the country, Bob, or is it different in California? Do you have a sense of whether people in other states are acting similarly? Uh, it's all, it varies around the country. It's very state-specific or county-specific, and it's very much a question of particular local actors. I would just say that in, in California, it's 
everybody's been, every actor in the system has been under so much pressure to decarcerate because of, because of the lawsuit. We do have the only state prison system, which is still unconstitutional, that uh, there isn't that much pushback against it. Uh, now, there are downsides to this. If you talk to people at the county level, they say they're glad that they've gotten people out of the jails and therefore people who are not going to go to prison, uh, but they don't know where they are. Uh, they're not going to rehab programs that we don't know if they are because we just don't know where they are. We look at the back end of it and say, gosh, if the crime rate isn't going up or if we don't see recidivism from people who are released, I guess that's a good thing. But we don't know the longer term effects of this because there are offenders, some of them convicted, some not, who are just lost at the moment. Joe? Bob, what is happening to the crime rate in the day, the age of COVID? Do we have any data yet? Uh, there are always blips up and down, and somebody will always say, oh, I found the cause because I found the correlation. They haven't moved much at all. Uh, for violent crime generally, and depends on the place, there are some oddities. Violent crime, broadly defined, has gone down in most places. Uh, there are a few spikes in murder, and that's unusual in the sense of the two moving in opposite directions. I don't think the data are significant enough to tell us very much. There's a theory that murder is a much more intra kind of thing. People tend to be killed by people they know pretty well, whereas violent crime, if you define it more broadly, is going to involve gang interaction and a lot more mobility. Uh, property crime has had some upward blips. I saw a statistic the other day which seemed very, very odd to me that in San Francisco, burglary had gone up. Now, that's wildly improbable. If you go back 80, 90 years to the, rece to the recession, whoa, the depression, the real depression, the one crime that went down for sure during the depression was home burglaries because everybody was home. Burglars are not robbers. They don't want to meet human beings, okay? And to use an old misogynist term, the man of the house was home. So why would this be happening now? Well, I started looking at the numbers, and I think it's all because of very clumsy aggregation of the term burglary. Most of the rise in burglary, and it hasn't been significant, have, uh, has involved commercial burglaries. Stores, are, businesses are not being occupied right now, and auto burglaries. And I should just say that crimes against autos, breaking into cars and auto thefts, have always been a bit of an anomaly. After realignment happened, most crime in California stayed pretty low. It's been low for a long, long time. There were odd spikes in these car-related crimes, but that's largely because that's a kind of uh, special economic market with a funny kind of organization to it. It has very little to do with the overall vectors of crime. We'll be back with more from our guest, Bob Weisberg, talking about criminal justice in the era of COVID. Next on Stanford Legal, on Sirius XM. Answers for the legal questions you've been thinking about. This is Stanford Legal. Welcome back to Stanford Legal, where we look at the cases, questions, conflicts, and legal stories that affect us all every day. I'm Pam Carlin, along with Joe Bankman. And, and Joe, our guest today is our colleague Bob Weisberg, and he's talking about criminal justice in the era of COVID. And, you know, as we see that COVID is going to last for quite a while. I mean, nobody thinks it's going to be gone in the next couple of days, except for possibly our president. Um, it, it raises the question of how we do things like conducting trials, because trials are really a very kind of old-fashioned, traditional mechanism 
for determining guilt or innocence. Everybody's in the same room. The jurors are in the box. The lawyer uh, confronts the witness and cross-examines the witness by going up and handing him documents. How is this all going to work in an era of COVID? Are there trials being held right now? Virtually none. There are lots of hearings going on, motion hearings of various kinds, uh, but those can be done on Zoom. Uh, where you're certainly not going to see any trials as civil trials because there's not going to be a speedy trial right there. But of course, civil cases provide an analogy. There are lots of, I'm sure there are lots of Zoom uh, uh, depositions going on and various motion hearings. That's pretty much what's happening in criminal justice. Now, the, the competing pressures here are the defense, if it wants to, can push its speedy trial claims and sort of uh, you know, put the uh, the prosecutor and the court in a certain box, uh, up to a certain point, the court will say, and it has some authorization in state law, though it's quite controversial, that the speedy trial uh, requirements are uh, are being uh, told, T-O-L-L-E-D, uh, because of certain emergency situations. But a speedy trial is a mixture of these very technical counting rules. My God, they almost make tax law look easy, but always with an overlay of balancing of prejudice and harm to the defendant against the need for the delay. And at a certain point, you know, uh, the defendant is going to win an argument saying, you can't delay me forever. Now, if trials don't happen, what happens uh, then? Uh, you've got the incarceration problem, at least with people pre-trial. And that is where, frankly, a lot of people are just having their cases dismissed, or at least they're being released from jail. Nobody's going to, almost nobody's going to go to jail for a, a misdemeanor these days. Uh, there have been a few episodic efforts, largely in rural counties, which are under less pressure, to get juries going. But it's like somebody teaching, in a, a professor teaching in a classroom where she can only fit 10 people in a classroom uh, normally designed for 40 and they're, they're spaced out like, you know, the crowd when the, you know, the game is 40 points out of reach or something like that. And uh, those cases have almost, there's virtually none that has actually resulted in a real jury trial. We think of the, uh, the scenes where you're addressing the jury the jury now is basically occupying an enormous space because they can't sit together. Right. After, after, instead of, usually we think of the scenes of the jury meeting around a long table and deciding right. who's guilty and who's in, they can't do that either. Boy, look back at the great movie, 12 Angry Men, and they were sweating their bodily fluids all over each other in that movie in that very hot summer day. That's not going to happen. Now, some of these are not just matters of degree. They cross legal lines. And that is, depending on how you interpret certain constitutional doctrines like the Confrontation Clause, uh, a, a, a defendant can quite plausibly say, you can't put me on trial unless I can truly confront my accuser, any witness against me. And it has to be in person. And maybe it can't even be that far apart. Now, all these rights can be waived. Uh, but then it's a question of, you know, when the defendant has an incentive to waive those things. And that, of course, is largely going to be a function of whether the prosecution makes enough concessions, in which case we're just talking about more lenient plea bargains. This is Stanford Legal. And today we're talking with Bob Weisberg about um, criminal justice in the era of COVID. And one thing that, you know, each of the things you've said, and this started with what we were discussing at the very beginning, which was California had 
a health crisis and an overcrowding crisis in its prisons pre-COVID. I mean, COVID may just be a spotlight that's shining uh, more light on problems that have already existed. And I know the Criminal Justice Center at Stanford has been looking at a lot of these issues even before COVID. Um, Tell us a little bit about what you've been finding with regard to indigent criminal defense more generally. Well, in terms of indigent defense, it's been true for a long time that uh, public defenders, and of course, there were, I'm largely talking about the true public defender, a government agency, although this applies to the various kinds of nonprofits that, you know, perform the same function. Uh, They're hugely underfunded. The right to counsel under Gideon says nothing about the amount of resources available to lawyers. The only constitutional check on that is the ineffectiveness doctrine, but that's a pretty clumsy way of sort of finding a back door into ensuring uh, better funding. Uh, So we've been doing some research about how various jurisdictions are dealing with this, and it's an interesting uh, test for the different... Uh, legal levers in a system. So we've had public defenders that are going on strike and therefore essentially trying to shut down the criminal justice system because the defendants have to have lawyers. There are these oddities, class action ineffectiveness cases where public defenders say in in some kind of mass, all our clients, we're almost conceding, we're indeed proclaiming that we are ineffective. And, and therefore, you can't uh, you can't send our uh, our uh, uh, our clients to jail. Uh, there are obviously some legislative efforts uh, to improve funding, uh, but part of the problem is that we don't really know what the proper allocation of resources is. We talk about caseload, we talk about workload. They're not the same thing. Ironically, a question that is been raised under COVID is, is it possible that the workload has gone down? Not so much on COVID, I should say, but because of decarceration efforts. COVID has just been one example of it. So ironically, you would think that uh, the decarceration efforts, like in California, realignment, Prop 47, Prop 57, would have actually alleviated the caseload slash workload problem because fewer people are going to prison. And if you get down to the source of all this, maybe fewer people need lawyers for a long period of time. That's simply something uh, you know that hasn't been studied yet. But I want to just add one little point here about the difference between caseload and workload. Uh, there's probably... Uh, an increasing disconnect there or kind of inversion because of electronic surveillance, including body cams. Uh, uh, Defense lawyers tell us that just going through the discovery in a case takes much, much longer than it used to because we used to just flip through the paper file and now we spend half the day looking at videos or other electronic data. So that's just to say that something like that, which in some ways reflects reformist efforts to help uh, uh, defendants, you know, access to the video, which, you know, probably as a whole, you know, helps defendants, is actually exacerbating the workload problem. And the workload problem is quite disconnected from the caseload problem. But we're trying to do, we've, we've begun actually a national survey of what the situation is in different states and what the legal mechanisms are and measurements for these problems. We've been talking with Bob Weisberg about prisons and detention in the age of COVID. Takeaways, there's always a lot of takeaways with you, Bob, but I think the big takeaway is that COVID is tied to decarceration, 
whether it's going to be enough to stop the spread of COVID in the prisons uh, remains to be seen. Thank you, Bob, for joining us on Stanford Legal. And thank you to our listeners for joining us here on Stanford Legal on Sirius XM. This has been Stanford Legal on Sirius XM Business Radio. If you missed any of it, listen on demand, online or with the Sirius XM app.